Hebrews 2020, Increment 258, and it's Wednesday, February 15th, and the title is, if I can say it, I will do the whole message, The Unilaterality and the Unconditionality of the New Covenant. We will read our passage because I want to keep pointing it out and keep emphasizing the passage we're involved with in Hebrews, starting at 8b, going through 12. Look. The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with the fathers, with their fathers in the day when I took hold of their hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not abide by my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will covenant. That's kind of like the Greek phrase that we're going to be putting within the title, I will covenant, the covenant that I will covenant, hey diatheke, hein diathesomai, with the house of Israel. Notice that God is covenanting the covenant, and that shows that it's a unilateral one and an unconditional one. With the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind and upon their hearts. We could say for a change because he says, not like the other one. This time for a change, I will put my laws into their mind and that includes their intentionality and upon their hearts and I will inscribe, I will inscribe them. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. And none of them will teach his fellow citizen or his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because all will know me from the least to the greatest, because I will be merciful to their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, the longest quotation of an Old Testament scripture in the New Testament, bar none, right there. Now, some thoughts loosely around the new covenant. The new covenant is unilateral in as much as its fulfillment is on God. It's on him who made the covenant. But it's also on Jesus who mediates the covenant. God places his spirit in a community of human persons and causes them to walk in obedience to his laws which will have been gently chiseled upon their hearts by the ever-tapping, omnipotent spirit. For this reason, the ministry of the New Covenant community, and it is called a ministry, is called the ministry of the spirit. It is the spirit placed within the hearts of the New Covenant community, the Lord, the spirit, willing and working in them, or us, to bring about actions that are pleasing to God, because it's actually God doing the willing and doing the doing in Philippians 2.13. Because he puts those laws on our mind, that includes our intentionality, and in our hearts, and that's where the doing is done also. Willing and working in us to bring about actions that are pleasing to God. Pleasing in Philippians 2.13 and Hebrews 11.6, because they are actions resulting from divine initiative and executed by divine power. These actions are entirely done in love. 
for they result from the Holy Spirit pouring out the love of God in our hearts in Romans 5.5. The laws, statutes, and judgments, that is, to be accomplished are the two commandments which form the peg upon which all the law and the prophets hang. Namely, the first, love the Lord your God with your whole heart, with your whole soul, and with your whole mind. And the second, or deuterah, which is the same na- of the same nature, love your neighbor as yourself. By the Lord the Spirit, in 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18, these commands are ob- obeyed to the pleasure and approval of the God of love and peace. That's what he's called in 2 Cor, 2 Cor 13, 11, and he is called love. He is love in 1 John 4, 8, and 16. Though the new covenant was made with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, specifically speaking here in Hebrews 8, it is with all mankind by extension. For Israel is only completed when according to the mystery, a mystery in Hebrew in Romans 11.25, All the Gentiles come into it. Israel is only completed when all the Gentile nations come into it. Just as Christ himself, the Israel of God, is made complete when all of humanity come into him. That's what we call the whole Christ. That's what is called the supreme good. That's what's called the end denoted by the term redemption. The law of the cross does not force human good, but it converts the evils of the human race into the supreme good by doing things like converting Saul of Tarsus to Paul, who said, for me to live is Christ. For Jesus, the son of Abraham and the son of David, please notice that, the son of Abraham and the son of David, I say that because both Abraham and David are named for everlasting covenants, is at once the inclusive representative, Jesus is, of a united Israel and Judah, and the inclusive representative of all humanity as the son of man and the last Adam. The son of man is a very universalistic title for Jesus, as is the last Adam or the second man. The Abrahamic covenant is everlasting. We're going to take a look at that today or this evening. The Abrahamic covenant is everlasting and still in force as I speak. For it promises an everlasting seed in Galatians 3.16 in whom all the nations will be blessed, namely with justification and righteousness, Romans 5.18 and 19, with sanctification for the Lord himself is our righteousness and our sanctification. 1 Corinthians 1.30 to 31. Therefore no flesh can boast in his sight because all flesh will be gifted with Christ himself as its sanctification. Nobody can say I am holier than thou seriously and mean it and have it be real. Hebrews 10.14 also speaks of that sanctification. So again... All the nations will be blessed with justification, sanctification, and life. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for in Christ all will be made alive. 
The Davidic covenant, or the covenant named after David, is also everlasting, 2 Samuel 23, 5. And I, I say that David said that on his deathbed, but it technically wasn't his deathbed. It was just one of his last sermons or one of his last speeches. He talked about the everlasting covenant that God made with his house as screwed up as his house was. That's grace. The Davidic covenant is also everlasting, therefore, and still in force now. Why? Because God promised in it and by it an everlasting king on the throne of David. And we have that in Jesus at the right hand of the Father. As we've seen, this king is also a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and we've seen that uniquely in Hebrews. The Abrahamic covenant is to the end of benefiting all of humanity. I'll say that again. The Abrahamic covenant, as the new, as the Davidic, as all the unconditional covenants, benefits all of humanity. The Davidic covenant benefits all of humanity for this king this descendant of David, this son of David, is the king of kings. 1 Timothy 1.17, 6.15, Revelation 17.14, 19.16. He's also called the king of the nations in Revelation 15.3. The king of Israel, the king of the Jews, is the king of the nations. Therefore, he's the king of all. Similarly, the new covenant is to the blessedness of all humanity for the ransom that Jesus paid in his blood was not only for Israel, but for all humankind. 1 Timothy 2.6 The new covenant, though entirely independent of conditions on the human side. Listen carefully to this because we're getting very fine-tuned in the word of God. We're rightly dividing the word of truth with a very fine-tuned cut. A very sharp blade, sharper than any two-edged sword. The blade we're using right now. The new covenant, though entirely independent of conditions on the human side, is in another sense related to human faithfulness, but it is exclusively and entirely the faithfulness of the man, Christ Jesus. I'll say that again because it's an important and loaded concept. The new covenant, though entirely independent of conditions, therefore unconditional on the human side, is in another sense related to human faithfulness, but it is exclusively and entirely the faithfulness of the man, Christ Jesus. However, his faithfulness, Jesus' faithfulness, is also the faithfulness of God, as no other human beings can be. That's why Paul said to a largely Gentile readership, by grace you have been saved through faith, or we could say through faithfulness, adding, very importantly, that this faith or faithfulness is not yours, but Christ's, who is a too natural, he is a too natural person, having the natures of God and of man as the God-man. So we're not wrong to say that the new covenant is unconditional with respect to all humanity, and at the same time, dependent on the faithfulness of God and of Christ, the God-man. But on no exclusively human person or persons. That covenant is based on or conditioned by no human person other than the God-man.
Moreover, the reality of the new covenant is not just that God's laws are inscribed on fleshly tablets of human hearts, but that Christ, the fulfiller of the law and the prophets in Matthew 5.17, lives in us, having his existence in the Lord, the Spirit. It's one thing to say Jesus is Lord while we think of him at the right hand of the Father. It's another thing to consider the Lord the Spirit because he becomes the Lord of our thoughts, our minds, our hearts, our intentions, our conscience, the dictates of our conscience, the movements of our body, the direction of our, of our lives itself. The Lord the Spirit, when the Spirit is the Lord, he defies all of Baal's attempts to dominate us, all addiction's attempts to dominate us, all false dependencies. The Lord, the Spirit, is not just saying Jesus is Lord and he's way up there. It's saying Jesus is the Lord, the Spirit, in me, in my mind, in my heart, in my soul, in my very being, in my body. That's the key for 2023. So then, the reality of the new covenant is not just that God's laws are inscribed on fleshly tablets of human hearts, but that Christ, the fulfiller of the law and prophets, lives in us. That's the point. Having his existence in the Lord, the Spirit. Therefore, it is God in us willing and performing God's statutes and judgments to his own good pleasure. Galatians 2.20, Philippians 2.13 compared with, or we confer with, for that, Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. The life that we, the New Covenant community, NCC, now live in the flesh, we live by the faithfulness of the Son of God, or we could even say within the sphere of the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Any other kind of life, air quotes, is a frustration of the grace of God including the kind of life, so-called, that endeavors to show that one is in Christ by one's own will or works independent from God or by one's own faith or faithfulness. Such a self-righteous livingness involves what is fashionably but rightly called virtue signaling, gesturing to others by the things we say, the sentiments we express, the works we do to be seen by others, to be seen by men, that somehow we are more virtuous and that our virtue is superior to others who by comparison are unchristian, morally or culturally inferior, or in some cases racist, unwoke, xenophobic, homophobic, transphobic, climate change deniers, etc., etc., ad nauseum. We live in an age where we're just inventing new names to insult people with because of our self-righteous arrogance. Now, second phase of the message. To illustrate the unilaterality and the unconditionality of the new covenant, I want to deploy the tactic of dialectics here. It's one of the nine theological functional specialties developed by Bernard Lonergan and followed up by Robert M. Duran, who brought in the ninth, which is Horizons. I think there's a couple more. I haven't yet named them. Now, in his book entitled Grace, simply Grace, Lewis Sperry Chafer 
whom I read copiously and with appreciation in my early days as a pastor and before that. Many wonderful books I read by him. He was a staunch dispensationalist, however, and took the mantle from C.I. Schofield, of course, as many of you know, and he passed on dispensationalism to people. Chafer was good on a lot of things, but dispensationalism is a dead-end street. It's a cul-de-sac. There's no outlet. It just dies. Dispensationalism is something I followed to the end of that cul-de-sac and found out there was nowhere to go from there. And so that's when I, by the grace of God, had the discovery of the Israel of God and from the Israel of God, the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ, and from there, other insights that are now developing. And so thank God for the rescue from that cul-de-sac. So I do have a great regard and great respect for, for Lewis Berry Chafer. I read his book, True Evangelism. I read his book on spirituality, Christian spirituality. I read his book on his eight-volume systematic theology and his book on grace more than once. And I'm going to quote from the book of grace. Then I want to get into a friendly dialectic with Lewis Berry Chafer. And that means we're in kind of an argumentative thing here, but it's not in any way to impugn the writings of Lewis Berry Chafer or his followers or anything else. So please be aware of all that. That's a disclaimer. I'm going to read a passage from his book called Grace on the Covenants, and it's quite good, except for one little glitch that I want to get into. He says this, and this is a quote from Lewis Berry Chafer directly. The several great covenants into which God has been pleased to enter with men are either conditional covenants or unconditional covenants. So far, so good. A covenant is, a condi is conditional whenever it is made to depend at any point on the faithfulness of man. Excellent. The law as given by Moses was a conditional covenant. Yes, it was. In terms, its terms might be stated in the words, if ye will do good, I will bless you. Puritanical, but right. On the other hand, a covenant is unconditional when it stands as a simple declaration from God as to what he proposes to do and without relation to the faithfulness or unfaithfulness of man. Bingo. Excellent. The Abrahamic covenant and he cites Genesis 12, 1 to 4, Genesis 13, 14 to 17, Genesis 15, 1 to 7, and 17, 1 to 8, is an unconditional covenant. I agree wholeheartedly. It will be seen that God relied at no point on the character or conduct of Abraham. Yes, indeed. He simply declared to Abraham what he proposed to do. Yep, just like the new covenant, I will covenant that covenant. Then he says... This was based on Abraham's faith. Ooh-ooh. This was based on Abraham's faith, but not on Abraham's faithfulness. Yeah, it wasn't based on Abraham's faithfulness, but it wasn't based on Abraham's faith. That's the point of our dialectic. So here's how I'd begin to reply, and I'm going to reply for a long time on this one. I think we'd have to say in reply, that the Abrahamic covenant did not depend on Abraham's faithfulness or his faith. Though it did in one important respect very much depend on Jesus' faithfulness. God who promised is faithful, Hebrews 10.23, pertains unilaterally. 
In the course of Abraham's episodic life, I say episodic because when you read Abraham's life, it's a series of episodes, very important episodes. In the course of Abraham's episodic life, God worked in Abraham in such a way as to evoke faith in him and cause him to be faithful to God to the point where Abraham not only did not doubt the promise of God, but being strengthened in faith, he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that what God had promised he was also able to do. Romans 4, 20 to 21, commendable. God commends his servant Abraham. Paul commended him in Romans 4. The scriptures commend him. The author of Hebrews commends him. The Holy Spirit commends him. But that didn't make the covenant made to Abraham dependent on his faith. That's what we're going to see here. The result of this was that Abraham's faithful trust was assessed by God to be righteousness, as we know from Romans, from Genesis 15, 6. Again, the result of this was that Abraham's faithful trust was assessed by God to be righteousness in the sense of God-approved livingness, not in the sense of his justification slash salvation, but in the sense that God approved of his livingness, which is faith. But this does not mean that God made the covenant with Abraham to depend on or to be based on Abraham's faith at all. It simply means that in the course of Abraham's life and spiritual history, by God's grace, and I hope this happens with all of us in Tetelestai Phalanx and all who are listening to this message, he came to faith and demonstrated unwavering trust in God's promise of a son and an heir, even when, and I'll say this, especially when severely tested, as he was in Genesis 22, 1 to 18. Abraham's faith was entirely and remarkably commendable, but it did not guarantee the fulfillment of the covenant. Here's where we hit a, well, a kind of a pothole. This is a year for potholes, for sure, the time of potholes, but here's kind of a pothole. We have to avoid it, though. The voice of the angel of Yahweh said this to Abraham when he had raised the blade to thrust it into the heart of Isaac are to cut his throat and do a sacrifice, make him a sacrificial lamb. The voice of the angel of Yahweh said this from heaven, by myself I have sworn, says Yahweh, because you have done this thing. Please notice this. This seems to give some weight to what Chafer was saying. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son, I will indeed bless you and make your seed as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Incidentally, that's the blessing of universal salvation through Abraham's seed. By saying this, now isn't this, this it bothers me. I, when I read the scripture, I don't, I'm not a dilettante. I'm not somebody who just ho- makes a hobby out of reading the Bible or reads 10 chapters a day in the King James and then brags about it to my grandchildren. I read it with serious intent to figure out what it's saying. And then I go to God in prayer and say, teach me this. I, want to be th- I don't want to be an autodidact. I want to be a theodidact, a God-taught person. By saying, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son, it seems that this was the condition attached to the Abrahamic covenant. But it was not. 
For Abraham's unwavering fidelity was a demonstration of the obedience of Jesus Christ, which was, which was what ratified the new covenant. For Jesus' obedience was even unto blood, in Hebrews 12.4, namely the blood of the covenant, consisting of his faithful obedience to the extent of his willing endurance of the death of the cross, in Philippians 2.8, thus ratifying a covenant, and creating a ministry of righteousness in 2 Corinthians 2, 3, 9, for by his obedience many, that is all, were constituted as righteous, Romans 5, 19, in connection with 5, 18. So it's Jesus' faithfulness that justifies everybody. Not Abraham's faith justifying Abraham or that which the covenant depended upon. God's grace was such, on the other hand, and this is, we have to look at both sides of this to walk on two legs on this one. God's grace was such that though his covenant to Abraham was unconditional, at the culmination of Abraham's obedience, God guaranteed its fulfillment by the addition of an oath to the promise. Genesis twenty-two sixteen. In other words, Abraham's faith or unfaithfulness would not have destroyed the promise. But because he was obedient in what we would call the evidence test of his life against all things by sight, God was so enthralled that he added an oath to the promise, adding, I will indeed bless you. He doesn't say, I'm going to bless you because of your faith. He's saying, because of your obedience, I will indeed bless you. But even this did not indicate that the Abrahamic covenant was based on Abraham's faith or his faithfulness. Abraham's obedience, which was the obedience of the spirit of Jesus Christ in him, and I'm going to demonstrate that in a minute, was in a have earlier in an earlier message where I kind of summed this up in advance. Abraham's obedience, which was really the obedience of the spirit of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1.20, in him, was followed by God's addition of an oath to the promise. That's Philippians 1, 19 to 20 about the spirit of Jesus Christ. The obedience of Abraham was in effect and in reality the obedience of the spirit of Christ. 1 Peter 1, 11, the Lord, the spirit, and that's 2 Corinthians three seventeen. The spirit of Christ is also the Lord, the spirit. Now, the Spirit of Christ, or the Lord with the Spirit, or the Lord the Spirit within the prophets, 1 Peter 1, 10 to 11 says, contrary to dispensational allegations, that the Spirit was not indwelling people in the Old Testament, Peter says, the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, the prophets, was also in Abraham. The Spirit of Christ was within the prophets, in the prophets operative in them, indwelt them, 1 Peter 1, 10 to 11. That same spirit of Christ, however, was also in Abraham. Why? Because the spirit of Christ is also the spirit of faith. Most translations have spirit with a small s in 2 Corinthians 4, 13. Not the complete Jewish Bible and not me. I think the Spirit should have a capital S because we should translate the Spirit of faith in 2 Corinthians 4.13 as the Spirit who evokes faith. 
And so the spirit of Christ that was in these prophets is the same spirit that evokes or kindles or even creates faith in people. The spirit of Christ within the prophets is the spirit of Christ in Abraham. The spirit of Christ in Abraham was the spirit of faith in Abraham and in all the prophets in whom, incidentally, God univocally spoke of the restoration of all things. There wasn't a prophet that God didn't speak about through them about the universal restoration, even if they didn't write about it, Acts 3.21. Abraham was also called a prophet by God. So if the spirit of Christ was in the prophets and Abraham was a prophet, then the spirit of Christ was in Abraham. And so Abraham's faith was in many, in, in the very richest sense, the faith of Christ, God's own faith. Let me demonstrate it. Abraham was actually called a prophet by God. So I would say he's a prophet. Was Daniel a prophet? Jesus called him a prophet in Matthew 24, 8, 15. The prophet Daniel spoke of the abomination of desolation, Jesus said. So is Daniel a prophet? Jesus called him one. He is one. Is Abraham a prophet? God called him one, so he's a prophet. And so, in fact, Abraham was called a prophet by God who in a dream said to Abimelech, a sheikh and a person who had a harem, he had taken Sarah into his harem. Now, therefore, says God, here's what God says in the dream. He appears to Abimelech, Abimelech in a dream. He says, now, therefore, return the man's wife, meaning Abraham's wife, for he's a prophet. I'm talking here about Genesis 20 in verse 7. He's a prophet. Oh, and he'll pray for you and you will live. If someone's a prophet, and if someone is a special servant of God in our time, there may be times when that person will pray for individuals so that they don't die the sin unto death, and they don't die the sin unto death because he prays for them. That happens. There are times when God says, don't pray for them because they're, I'm taking them home, and I'm taking them home under my discipline, even though I'm taking them home in my love. And I've only done that once or twice in my life where I've prayed that God wouldn't take someone home by the sin unto death, and I think one of them was praying for myself, but that's another. No, I'm only kidding. So we would say in that case that if Abraham was a prophet and the spirit of Christ was in the prophets, we could say that the Abraham covenant, Abrahamic covenant was unconditional and that it depended on the obedience and faithfulness of Christ, not Abraham, as does the everlasting Davidic and the everlasting unconditional new covenant. It is based on the faithfulness of Christ. The man Christ Jesus is the only mediator between the one God, that's the party of the first part, and all of humanity, the party of the second part. 1 Peter 2.5. And Jesus Christ is the mediator of the new, the better, the everlasting covenant, not just to Israel and Judah, but to all of humanity. Because under the new covenant, ratified by the blood of the Messiah, 
enacted with better promises and rendered everlasting by the resurrection from the dead of the great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus. All of Israel is saved in the context of the salvation of all of humanity or all the nations. And that's what the new covenant speaks to. It's made with all people and it's an unconditional covenant, just like salvation is unconditional. The covenant that God made with Abraham was unilateral inasmuch as it depended on God's fidelity and God's action only. It depended on God in Christ who acted as the God-man in complete compliance with God's will and perfect concert with God's action in John 5.17. God was in Christ acting divinely. Christ was in God, acting humanly and divinely to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. And for that matter, even the Sinaitic or the old covenant. After all, Jesus did not come to destroy the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them, or literally to fill them up with himself, Matthew 5.17. Now, Though Moses was the mediator of the old covenant, Jesus was its fulfiller. God's faithfulness was consistently demonstrated even and especially in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That's why Romans 1.17 says, and what it means when it says that in the gospel, the righteousness of God, which is his saving act, which we demonstrated when we taught Romans, is revealed from faith to faith. That means from God's faithfulness to God's faithfulness demonstrated in and by Jesus Christ, the divine human being and the righteous one. God's faithfulness is like a single iron rod running from himself through his son and to the new covenant community and the world. God made sure that Abraham's only son and heir, Isaac, would be spared. But he did not spare, God did not spare, his only eternally begotten son and the heir of all things. He freely gave him over to death and judgment for us all in Romans 8.32 and raised him up for our justification. The justification of us all, Romans 4.25, Romans 5.18. Consequently, we have a ministry of righteousness and not of condemnation, as 2 Corinthians 3, 6-9 says. Consequently, we have a ministry of righteousness and not condemnation, I said. Jesus Christ brings righteousness to all as Adam brought condemnation to all. The new covenant brings righteousness to all through the second man as the first man brings us condemnation, which is really supplemented by the condemnation of the Old Covenant, or the law. On top of this, though God freely gave the Son, Jesus the Son also freely gave himself. And we are back to what I consider to be the premier declaration in Hebrews 9, 26. Now, once and for all, at the juncture of the eons, Christ appeared for the removal of sin by the sacrifice, thusias, or thusias, of himself. In any case, passing the final test with regard to Isaac, 
God then gave Abraham full assurance of the promise that blessing would come to his numberless seed, that seed being the whole Christ, Galatians 3.16, really all the way to 29. Here's a principle for you, and I think I'll make it a thesis down the road sometime. Optimal obedience leads to optimum assurance. Optimal obedience leads to optimum assurance. The approval of Abraham by God is an approval that God gave not only to Abraham, but also to all the other exemplars of faith who are chronicled in Hebrews 11. But it also pertains to us, for we have the same spirit who evokes faith, that is, the same spirit called the spirit of faith in 2 Corinthians 4.13, as Abraham had, as David had, as the prophets had, as Sarah had, as Deborah had, as Jephthah had, as Barak had, as all the, the heroes of the Maccabean era and the martyrs of that time had. Paul put it this way, for those of us on the other side of the cross, the finished side of the cross in Romans 4.23, but the words, it was accounted to him, were not written for Abraham alone, but also for us who believe in the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. For us also, faithfulness will be accounted by God to be approved livingness, rectitude, or the right way to live. Paul is speaking of faith in Romans 4, just exactly like the author of Hebrews speaks about it in Hebrews 11. Not as the means of justification, but as a means of approval and pleasure to God who approves that way of living. Faith. We live by faith. We walk by faith. It's notable that the note struck here is one of approval of people of faith in Romans 4, 23 to 24. That's the definitive note sounded also in Hebrews 11, 1 to 2. Here's, um, here's my translation of Hebrews 11, 1 to 2 with a little bit of the sense added. And the context added, speaking subjectively and as to sense, now faith is the assurance of hoped-for things, the inner conviction of unseen things. By it, our ancestors received approval, not justification, approval, not the fulfillment of a covenant based on their faith, but approval as to their livingness. God approves of faith and hope and love, but those are all his own initiatives in us. And in Hebrews eleven six, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So with faith, we do please him. This is precisely the way that Paul uses faith in speaking of Abraham's life and livingness. Faith is a means to secure God's approval and pleasure over us, but not the means either of justification or, or eternal salvation. It's true, and this is important, and again, I'm making very fine distinctions here in the word. It is true that in the believing, in the act of believing, which is an entirely supernatural act, in the act of believing, we experience being saved. While in not believing, we experience perishing. However, eternal salvation, eternal redemption, and the reconciliation of the world came by Jesus' faith and faithfulness. 
his obedience to the extent of death, the death of the cross. Our faith, engendered in us by God the Holy Spirit, is a means of receiving God's approval. It's not the means of the justification of sinful human beings. The faithfulness of the Son of God is that. The faithfulness of the Son of God is the means of the justification of sinful human beings. Having been crucified with Christ, and we have been, it is not we who live, but the risen Christ who lives in us. Nevertheless, we do live in, by, and to him. 2 Corinthians 5.15, we live to him. That means instead of living in a curvature in ad se, curvature into ourselves, we live in an externally related faith in Jesus Christ. And that's mental health, psychological health, spiritual health, all rolled into one, living to him who, raised us, who was raised from the dead. We live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loves us and gave himself for us. Because we live by his faithfulness, we aren't frustrating the grace of God. We're not trampling the Son of God underfoot. We're not insulting the spirit of grace or counting the blood of the covenant by which we were sanctified to be common. Hebrews 10.29. So as we move to a close here, without faith it is impossible to please God. This brings in a whole entirely new element that will be developed thoroughly in Hebrews. Faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. God is pleased with faith, which itself is the assurance of hope for things and the conviction of things unseen, Hebrews 11.1, 1. no matter in what era it is exercised, Hebrews 11.6. He is especially pleased with such faith when it's tested by circumstances which suggest by sight that, God, what, what, that what God promised may not come to pass. I'll say that again. It's very important. God is especially pleased with such faith when it's tested by circumstances which suggest by sight or appearance that what God promised may not come to pass. And the one who believes becomes even more fully persuaded of God's faithfulness during that testing. Let me say it in a little bit more expanded way on the level of our time. God is especially pleased with our faith when it is tested by circumstances which suggest by sight or suggest by scientism, sociopolitical, religious, ideological, or woke consensus that what God promised may not come to pass. And God is very pleased when the one who believes becomes even more fully persuaded of God's faithfulness during the course of these testings and trials. Paul did that, Romans 8, 35 to 39. I'm persuaded now that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so to say that an unconditional covenant, and I'm closing with this, this is the end of my little dialectic with uh, Lewis Berry Chafer, whom I admire, whom I have regard for, and I thank God for because it was a, he was a, the catalyst of much of my early spiritual growth till I hit the cul-de-sac. But cognitive dissonance has entered into his argument that we just read. 
To say that an unconditional covenant is based on any man's faith, even Abraham's, is a contradiction sourced from cognitive dissonance, which is a state of having inconsistent thoughts. If someone says that an unconditional covenant is solely dependent on the faithfulness of God, but then says the same covenant is nevertheless dependent or based on a man's faith, then the covenant is robbed of its unconditionality. Unless the faith is that of the divine man, the man Christ Jesus, the Son of God. Now, on the level of our time, we are faced with this all the time. Another reason why we must be bold in our presentation of the gospel, of the glory of the Christ, the universal glory of the Christ. Cognitive dissonance, a psychological term, of course, is expressed over and over again by Christian preachers who, in the same message, and sometimes in the same breath, say that salvation is entirely a matter of God's grace, but then make it to depend on your faith. Often they then add repentance, sorrow for sins, and a prayer that you will follow Jesus from this moment on forever. I'll follow you forever. If that's a condition of salvation, then we're all condemned. Unconditional covenants, therefore, are like unconditional salvation. They're made on the basis of God's grace and faithfulness alone and not on sinful man, not on his works or his faithfulness or even sinful man's faith. Salvation and the unconditional covenants depend entirely and exclusively and unilaterally on God's faithfulness and grace, his covenant fidelity with Jesus, the Son of God, as the divine human guarantor. That's all for today. Thanks for your attendance.